For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. A task force created by Governor Stitt in the wake of Oklahoma outlawing abortion recommended expanding health coverage for women. The Helping Every Life and Parent panel says the state should increase Medicaid coverage for pregnant women from 138% to 205% of the federal poverty level. Members also say postpartum coverage should be increased from 60 days to one year. Neva, Governor Stitt says he supports the preliminary recommendation. Do you think it will also get approval from lawmakers? I would think so. I mean, I think clearly the governor, um, I mean, this is a panel that uh, task force that he created. They're his members, basically, that he appointed. Um, and I think that uh, these recommendations came through quickly and with really probably very little conversation. So I think that uh, there's not much argument to be made against them. So it would uh, appear that uh, they would have pretty uh, easy sledding through the legislative side. I mean, I think the bigger question is, why do we need a task force to do this? Uh, you know, the cost to the state here is around you know, four to five million dollars. We leverage enormous investments from the federal government to make all of this happen. Um, you know, the fact that you know, women were limited to 60 days to begin with. Uh, is pretty extraordinary. Um, and so, and then if you look at, you know, raising those poverty limits, uh, a family of four is a little over $50,000, which, you know, may sound like a whole lot of money, but if you're trying to buy clothes and food for four, uh, for two kids uh, and two adults and, you know, maintain a household and pay rent, and especially with inflation, all of this is incredibly difficult. And then if you put healthcare cost on top of that, that's the thing that sinks a lot of Oklahoma families. So, I think this is a, a really good move. It's welcome. The cost of the state is so minimal. Uh, the, the question I've got is, can we do more? Well, and I think the other thing to point out is that this change affects approximately 2,500 women. So um, that's kind of the, the baseline, it would appear, in terms of uh, where the need is. And I think this task force uh, clearly will have the opportunity in the coming days to look at uh, uh, to look at other areas. I thought it was uh, interesting that in the governor's um, uh, executive order for this task force, one of the things that they really are going to key in on beyond just what we've talked about in terms of these two recommendations are um, uh, looking at things that would support not only mothers facing unplanned pregnancies, but also doing things with respect to working with nonprofits and local faith uh, communities to more efficiently work with families and mothers, both uh, before, during, and after childbirth. This includes uh, uh, the adoption process, the cost of adoptions, uh, um, many of these other things that uh, many of the legislative committees, quite frankly, have talked about for years. And now it seems that uh, maybe this will be a task force that will be directed to uh, do some more conversation in this regard and maybe in other areas as well. Well, and this uh, panel came about when Governor Stitt signed legislation that outlawed you know, virtually all abortions in the state of Oklahoma. And uh, it was this idea of like, okay, well, you know, uh, people that were upset with that, including myself, uh, you know, said, well, how are we going to take care of these women and their children? So, you know, this, this panel came out of that. Those are some of the recommendations there. I would say that, you know, for our listeners, look at this as an early instance of kind of the new politics of abortion care and abortion rights, because Republicans for 40 years had Roe v. Wade as a constitutional backstop. They could pass all of the anti-abortion measures that they wanted, but they had the Constitution there to save them. Now that that's not there, states are really going to have to grapple with these issues of, you know, when women need reproductive health care, how they get it, and what's allowed for them to get. 
And um, so, you know, this doesn't squarely attack that question, but I think that uh, we we should we'd be remiss if we didn't at least look at it in that frame, because I do think that this is an early instance of a, a new type of abortion politics in the state of Oklahoma, some of which may get bipartisan support, like this uh, expansion of Medicare benefits. I, you know, I think this task force really, I mean, Medicaid. When, when you talk about, I mean, they're, what they're charged with, I mean, uh, with, re- with regard to policies, uh, programs, proposed legislation, I think it gives them the opportunity to come forward with come forward with innovative thinking in terms of how to deal with exactly what you're talking about, Ryan, and that is uh, address issues that are of importance to all Oklahomans. And certainly when we talk about a lot of these areas that have been not talked about as much, such as supporting crisis pregnancy centers in Oklahoma and other things that have uh, proven results with respect to dealing with the issues that uh, many of these women are facing. A new survey from Sooner Poll shows Democratic gubernatorial candidate Joy Hoffmeister uh, has a has narrowed the gap against incumbent Governor Stitt. Of the respondents, 43.7% say they support Stitt, while 42.7% support Hoffmeister. Ryan, what is your takeaway from this poll? Well, you know, as Larry Sanders used to say whenever he'd cut commercial, uh, no flipping. No, no flipping, because this is a race you want to pay attention. Uh, probably the most competitive race for governor that the state of Oklahoma has seen in a very long time. Um, you know, a margin of error poll like this. Uh, and anecdotally, I you know I I hear that this is consistent with what you know other polls uh, are are looking at around the state of Oklahoma. Now, do I know that? I don't know that, but you know that's <laughs> things that you hear. Uh, and you know, I, so I do think that what we have, whether this poll is spot on or not, is a legitimate campaign for governor, and it's going to be very competitive. And you know. Smaller thing, you know, this is the kind of campaign where very small things. We're going to talk about, you know, turnpike expansion mm-hmm. coming up in just a moment. Uh, you know, the the idea that you know these smaller nascent issues could affect the outcome of this because the margin of victory could be that small. Neva. Well, I mean, I think there's no dispute that this is a race that everyone's going to watch. I mean, it's competitive. Uh, when you start to break down these numbers in the Sooner poll, and they've had these numbers out there released, including their cross tabs for people to take a look at. And, you know, one of the things that I thought was uh, striking is the fact that uh, the governor, while he's getting 71% of Republican support, uh, he's losing in this poll, uh, it showed about 17.5% to Hoffmeister. I mean, significant, mm-hmm. particularly when you take into account the fact that on the Democrat uh, vote side for her, she was getting about 83%, I think it was, of her base vote, and yet uh, she was only losing about 3% or 4% to uh, to uh, Governor Stitt. So those, became, those become real factors in terms of beginning to analyze where the voters are and how fluid this is. I mean, if it comes down in October to a very competitive race uh, where people believe it's a dead heat. Um, anything is, you know, certainly anything is possible. And then it gets down to what I always talk about in, in elections. It's about who shows up. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, if if uh, if there's intensity on one side more than the other in a close race, that makes all the difference in the world. I mean, if you see demographic breaks, which clearly this poll also mm-hmm. indicated where uh, uh, there seems to be some separation, rural versus urban, women versus men. I mean, those things, just like we talk about in presidential campaigns where all of those things are factors that people pay a lot of attention to. I think people are now now not just willing to 
summarily dismiss all campaigns as just a Republican slide of, you know, top to bottom sweep, but rather that there are going to be some breakout races. And it appears that um, that the governor's race and the superintendent's race will be those two races that we'll have the most focus on. Interesting. You, you mentioned that 17 percent of Republicans that said in this poll that said that they were going to switch over and vote for uh, uh, Hoffmeister on the Democratic uh, ticket. You know, I'd, I'd be interested to know, and I don't know that we know this, I don't think that the poll, you know, tells us this, but are those Republicans moving over to Hoffmeister because they're dissatisfied with the governor, or are they moving over to Hoffmeister because Hoffmeister used to be a Republican, they liked her then, you know, they voted for her, they think she'd be a good governor, and they're going with Hoffmeister, or is it a combination of the two? Well, you know, I thought it was also interesting in the poll because one of the things that I've wondered about all through kind of this election season is how the intensity and dislike of of President Biden, it would be in this, how it would factor into the Oklahoma elections. And, you know, when you look at this, it appears that uh, Biden's unfavorables are not hurting Hoffmeister as much as we're seeing him really be a, a drag on the uh, uh, the top of the ticket in a lot of other states, both in uh, Senate races as well as in governor races. So um, it, it seems to be, at least in this poll, you could make the argument that there seems to be um, the, the voter awareness that they know what they like and don't like, and they know where that is on the on the on the ballot. Now, whether that changes and we see straight party voting really kind of sweep the day, and that mm-hmm. will always in Oklahoma. I don't think we've seen any change indicate that that won't favor Republicans across the board. That will be the big question. The same Sooner poll also found a lead by Democratic candidate in the race for state superintendent. The survey shows 48% are backing teacher of the year, Jenna Nelson, compared to only 43% for state supported education secretary, Ryan Walters. Neva, should Walters be concerned about these results? Well, I mean, I think, yeah, when you're, when you've got two people first time on the ballot um, and you have a race where you have every other secondary race showing Republicans at 50% or higher in terms of just their baseline, in terms of all of those folks showing that they would win if the election were held today. And you see uh, this race with uh, the Republican at a five point deficit, which is the margin of error. I think Mm -hmm. it would be important to point out. Um, You, you, also have some fascinating, uh, I think, points again, kind of looking through that survey this week. I mean, it was it was clear that Nelson had a lead among uh, younger voters. Those are under 54. Those would be folks that would be most likely to have uh, children still in school. Mm-hmm. Uh, Walters was leading with older voters. Um, not a surprise. Older voters and and uh, certainly Republican uh, Republican voters uh, clearly in that uh, in that mix. Um, but. Again, one of the breakout, uh, I think, numbers in in the survey was the fact that Nelson had 19 percent of Republicans uh, and 90 percent of Democrats. So, again, she's showing some ability to get some crossover. Now, are those disaffected April Grace voters from from the primary who have made the decision that it's anybody but uh, Ryan Walters or they just won't vote in that race? That's a big question. And I think the other thing is, I mean, when you uh, look at the fact that um, you have two candidates that basically are going to have the most intensity in their race in terms of being out on the campaign trail in the last 30 days of the election. I mean, Nelson is just now, I think, uh, 
uh, even though she announced in, in March, she's been still teaching full-time. Uh, not exp- I think she's, uh, there was an announcement that she would be leaving her middle school Just this um, week. position this yeah. week yeah. Uh, and uh, taking a leave of absence so she could finish out the campaign. So it will be interesting to see. But I think this is a race people are talking about because education, while it's not the number one issue in this poll, it's number two behind inflation, it is still a significant issue that voters are interested in and want to pay attention to. Right. And uh, Jenna Nelson leaving class in SAS middle school where my son goes, go Comets. Uh, you know, uh, you know. hopefully, you know, she'll uh, have a new job uh, and, and that won't be coming back to the school before he graduates. But, you know, we will see. You know, I think that one of the things that is most telling is that that demographic breakdown among voters that are most likely to have some connection to public schools. And I've talked about this. Uh, we talked about this in the lead up to the runoff election. Um, voters that you know don't have uh, a, a child in an Oklahoma public school um, are much more likely to hear kind of the stuff that's coming out of Ryan Walters' TikTok and think, oh, well, this is you know really terrible. You know, kind of like those guys that you know run around and spout the 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 false myth that there's you know schools around this uh, country where uh, teachers are putting out litter boxes so that children that identify as cats can use a litter box in their class. And this doesn't exist, right? But if you don't have a kid in a school, uh, then, you know, that stuff is a little easier for you to believe because of the, the larger culture world, uh, culture war context. But if you've got kids in school, you know, the real issues are, are textbooks, infrastructure, making sure that air conditioners work uh, on really hot days, uh, having enough substitutes whenever you've got teachers that are sick. You know, those are the real issues. Um, you know, and when we think about, you know, banned books, forget banned books. Let's talk about getting kids to read books. Uh, and so to have a, an actual educator running against a guy. And I think that I would normally say that uh, Jenna Nelson would be in a disadvantage right now because she's gone the entire campaign cycle without most people even knowing her name. Now she's ahead in the polls, uh, even margin of error, but still ahead in the polls. Ryan Walters has spent the last year um, shaping himself, molding himself into one of the most divisive political figures in Oklahoma history. And, you know, and that even showed up on Republican uh, runoff primary night whenever he you know, didn't just sweep that. I mean, that was a competitive race for him even then with his own base. Uh, so I, I think that Jenna Nelson walks into this election uh, in a very strong position. I think Ryan Walters, you know, ought to be looking over his shoulder um, because we're not even looking over his shoulder at this point, you know, looking at the dust ahead of him. Now, when we talk about races like this one and for the governor's race, because of where the Democrat now is, does this get attention of the national political money makers who are bringing in money going, hey, maybe we should actually start putting some money in that? I, I think that those were going to be there anyways. I mean, maybe not on the Democratic side. That's what I mean. Uh, yeah. I, uh, you know, I think that there were, there were always going to be national groups that came in on Ryan Walter's side. I think that national educators right now see uh, can see uh, Ryan Walters as a prototypical figure of the kind of person that is trying to uh, put themselves in positions of power within education across the country, uh, you know, not to educate children, but to divide and conquer. Um, and, you know, putting a stop to that is, you know, sending that sending a real message and being able to win a campaign for Jenna Nelson in Oklahoma would send a real message message around the nation that, you know, educators are the ones that really ought, ought to be in charge of education. And Eva, well, on the flip side, does that make uh, national Republicans maybe concerned that he might be a little bit more toxic and they don't want to necessarily 
throw their money behind him. Does that make sense? I don't think so. I mean, okay. I think these races kind of stand on their own. I think when you look at the the uh, top of the ticket, you look at the two U.S. Senate races with Senator uh, uh, Langford uh, with a 17-point lead in this in this particular poll, uh, Mark Wayne Mullen in the open Senate seat with 11-point uh, lead. I mean, those those are dominant numbers, meaning that um, you could argue that Democrats nationally are not going to try to play in Oklahoma and U.S. Senate races because they have too many competitive races across the country right. that they're concerned about in trying to hold on to the U.S. Senate. And I think that when you look at the, the two races again, I mean, if, if, if the die is cast in terms of kind of the baseline for this, uh, for this general election and you see two races that are kind of the breakout competitive races, that's where the focus will be. But I think the intensity will be uh, here at the state level as opposed to the national. Fourteen legislators want the Department of Education to look into English teacher Summer Boimier after she shared a link to a banned book resource from the Brooklyn Public Library in New York. She also left her job after this came to light. Ryan, should <clears throat> Boimier be investigated for sharing this link to her students? Absolutely not. You know, and <clears throat> uh, state leaders in both parties really need to stand up and condemn this kind of a witch hunt. Um, you know, whether it comes from the State Department of Education or whether it comes from uh, legislators or any elected official going after an individual teacher's teacher certifica uh, certification to teach in an Oklahoma classroom. Uh, you know, that's the kind of thing that we go after people that, uh, you know, physically abuse children, uh, you know, and or or do some, you know, commit some heinous crime. I mean, and, and the, you know, we don't want that in a classroom with our children uh, to go after them for. Um, political statements and, and to back everything up, you know, Norman finally issued out a, a statement this week, uh, kind of outlining what actually happened. And their concern wasn't even the QR code that she shared for the New York Public Library's list of banned books. It was the comments that she made about lawmakers um, and, you know, disparaging comments that she allegedly made about lawmakers in the legislature. Well, they had this conversation with her. She resigned. That was their concern. And frankly, you know, that's a concern that's you know, much more, you know, reasonable to me is one that <clears throat> at least administrators should look into. I mean, I'd want to know if, uh, you know, my, my kids sat down in the classroom and somebody started, you know, spouting off a bunch of, you know, MAGA stuff or, you know, Joe Biden is this or Barack Obama is not a, a citizen. You know, I'd want the school to go talk to them and say, hey, these are your personal political views. You know, don't have them in the classroom. So that's what really happened here. And it's exploded into this thing, uh, you know, it's you know, so that it fits more neatly into this you know, landscape of, you know, toxic, divisive education politics that we have right now, um, that lawmakers would target an individual. Um, and, and I, I, again, I would caution them because the things that they're, that they are targeting her for aren't the things that she allegedly said in that classroom. They're not targeting her for that QR code necessarily. They're really focusing on statements that she made to the media after she was no, after she had resigned. I mean, these are personal private statements that she made, political statements. Um, and there's a thing called the First Amendment. And if the state tries to step in and take adverse action against somebody for protected First Amendment speech, you got a problem. Uh, so, you know, I, I would encourage these lawmakers, if you really want to do something with 1775, go back to the drawing board and write it in a way so that we all know what the heck it means. Neva. I, I agree with that point. I think that that's where it's headed in the next legislative session. I think there is so much uncertainty, uh, so many questions, and to avoid the continuing issue of this very uh, investigation now that's gone on in Norman with this uh, former teacher, uh, that, that the only way to resolve that is to really address 
what the word what the wording is. I mean, uh, according to um, uh, some interpretations, the district in their investigation uh, about this complaint that a parent had, um, it was the parent described the material as pornographic material, and that issue specifically is not even addressed in House Bill 1775. Now, many would say those are issues that we do need to, to deal with. We do need to uh, address and have certainty with how to move forward. Uh, on the State Department side, State Department of Education, um, if, I, if I remember correctly, they had said that the agency hadn't yet received a complaint specific to this, um, you know, uh, this particular violation. So again, we've got local level of school boards and what they do and uh, what their legal counsel tells them uh, the interpretation is of certain pieces of legislation. We have the State Department of Ed weighing in and having their role. But the confusion over all of this doesn't serve anyone well and certainly is something that I think needs to be swiftly resolved next session. Well, and I'll say it again. Stop worrying so much about what kids read and let's worry about getting kids to read. And that's the bigger problem that we've got right now. Literacy and childhood literacy and and, and, and getting kids to grow up to be lifelong adult readers, that's one of the best things that we can do to produce critical thinking citizens that can, you know, help lead us forward. And if we're just so concerned, you know, you know, pornography may not be in 1775, but it sure as heck is in, you know, multiple. Uh, I, I, I bet that if we looked at every school board uh, policy about book acquisition or assignment, there's going to be some sort of selection criteria in there that's been in there since uh, the ages that says, well, you know, this is inappropriate for children or it's appropriate for these ages. And then ultimately, let's stop relying on the government a little bit. You know, let's, you know, here's, here's, here's the liberal saying, let's stop relying well, on the government. Let parents well, take a little bit of responsibility that's right. here. Uh, again, going back to local control, going back to lo- the responsibility of the parent working with the teachers, working with the school administration, working with the school board to resolve these issues at the local level as they come up and not having these overarching just weigh in of folks from everywhere but where it's happening, you know, on the ground in that particular locale. The state Supreme Court took up the issue of a bond approval for the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority to build an extension in the Norman area. The referee heard from the OTA as well as opponents of the new highway in East Norman and McLean County. The hearing comes after the Council of Bond Oversight approved $500 million for the project. Neva, most high court approvals are typically low profile, but many are watching this closely. Oh, absolutely. And I think uh, even more closely uh, because on Tuesday, the referee that was hearing the arguments and would make a recommendation to the justices of the court, um, he asked the question, could the Turnpike Authority carve out of the bond approval, this particular issue at, at hand. And uh, there seemed to be, I mean, that seemed to kind of open the door for some feeling that uh, that we may see some unusual movement. And this may not just be a rubber stamp kind of uh, move through the process. Mm-hmm. Um, you and, and interesting to that point, it was the Turnpike Authority's attorney who did acknowledge when asked that it in fact could be done. So, I mean, we've got, we've got a situation here where a project that uh, uh, the Turnpike Authority says was approved years ago. Um, the money now they want to move forward, infuse this $500 million into a 15-year, $5 billion uh, project that's uh, on on uh, task to do multiple turnpikes, multiple new routes. 
And um, you've got this group uh, with this one turnpike in question that uh, has really kind of thrown a wrench in it and said, stop. I mean, it's time now to take a look and, and what is being done is not appropriate. And we have some legal challenge and want some remedy to this. So I think it's going to be fascinating to see what the court does. Right. Well, Neva, you said the, the authority that the Turnpike Authority is relying on to, to build this, you know, that, that that was passed years ago, many years ago, 1987. You know, so they're, they're looking back to legislation from 1987 because, you know, Governor Stitt gets elected and, you know, there was, oh, kind of this this idea that we would have a loop that would go around Oklahoma City, uh, the Southern Loop, and the governor said, well, let's do this. It's good for infrastructure and jobs. And so they started doing it. But their authority to do that is based uh, and I think, you know, some, somewhat, uh, you know, tentatively on this uh, or, or precariously on this 1987 uh, law of which, you know, there were other projects and the, the folks in Norman, their contention is, well, if it was going to happen, it should have happened contemporaneous. You don't just get to hang on to this uh, for nearly 40 years and then come back and say, well, now we're going to do it. Um, the other thing is that the politics of this uh, are incredibly interesting. We, we mentioned earlier when we were talking about the, the very small margin uh, between Governor Stitt and Joy Hoffmeister for the gubernatorial race, um, that you know, small things could make the difference here. Um, you've, you've turned a, a community uh, that I think was you know, largely going to break towards Governor Stitt into either undecideds, uh, they're going to undervote, meaning they're not going to cast a vote, or they're going to cast a vote for, uh, for Joy Hoffmeister. And this is one of those deals, you know, People will say, well, my vote doesn't make a difference. Here's, here's one where it does. Because if, if Joy Hoffmeister is elected governor, the governor enjoys tremendous appointment power over the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority. I, I can all but assure you if Joy Hoffmeister wins, this thing is either slowed down or it's just put to bed. Uh, and if Governor Stitt wins, it's going to move forward and you're going to have you know the Turnpike uh, uh, plans, you know, just happening over people's objections. And though those are two very different outcomes. And I think that at the end of the day, whatever the court does here, uh, probably needs to wait until the gubernatorial election is over with to know what administration is going to be controlling the turnpike authority. You know, and it is interesting. It has become an issue because there is a contrast. I mean, even Hoffmeister has gone so far as to say that the uh, the uh, turnpike authority has not been audited by external auditors for more than 75 years. Uh, the state auditor and inspector, in fact, did, you know, did uh, say um, when asked that she had not audited um, the uh, Turnpike Authority. It's always done by outside independent auditors, but there hasn't been that scrutiny um, internally, at least from the inside the state standpoint. That's something that uh, certainly Hoffmeister had uh, has made a big point of, and I thought it was interesting. She had a fundraiser, as you say, uh, Ryan. She had a fundraiser right down there in the backyard with these folks where uh, they are riled up and, and want to see some action on this. And she made the point, uh, uh, at least it was reported, that, uh, that, that Oklahoma has the second largest amount of miles that are in toll roads in the nation. And her point was uh, that, uh, you know, that that's not something we necessarily, necessarily need to be that proud of. And I think you've had other folks, even uh, uh, Irvin Yen, the independent uh, running for governor, um, saying that, uh, you know, uh, again, weighing in, having the same questions and challenges to this whole, uh, whole proposition. And the point being made again and again that uh, we need to pay for the toll roads and then make them 
free, uh, which was something that's been advocated and even we've seen in gubernatorial races in the past where Gary Richardson made that almost his sole plan. Get, get, your, get your This Week in Oklahoma <laughs> bingo cards out. Gary Richardson, folks. Mark Gary Richardson. I, I was so, waiting if we were going to get there. <laughs> so so I, think, I think it will be interesting, and I think you're right, Ryan. Is this going to be something that gets kind of rammed through and just uh, they hope is finished in a conversation not to be restarted? I think given the complexity and given the fact that there are so many uh, so many kind of competing interests in this, I think it's something we're going to be talking about for for months to come potentially. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. Programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at KOSU.org.